Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Hi, how are you? I hope that you are healthy, um, that you feel grounded and present. I hope that you're able to uh, zoom out a little bit, you know, take it all in. Get in some of those panoramic views as... uh, One of our guests, Andrew Huberman, said, you know, go out to the beach. Have a glass of water. Take a nap. Take a nap. That's what I love about today's podcast is uh, we have author, Dr. Guy Lesjener, who was a consultant neurologist and sleep physician and clinical lead for one of the largest sleep services in Europe based at Guy's Hospital in central London. He sees patients with a range of sleep disorders, including narcolepsy, restless leg syndrome, sleep apnea, which I have, and nocturnal epilepsy, and is actively involved in research and teaching. He's also presenter of the BBC radio series, Mysteries of Sleep. Today's a great episode. We talk about sleep disorders, nightmares, PTSD, sleep apnea, and how do we manage all those how do we not overcome it but you know make it livable how do we minimize it how do we improve our sleep all those good things that uh are that contribute to our mental health uh i'm not going to say anymore this is such a great episode there's a lot of information here you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly to get you through transitions traumas and tragedies and with that said let's get into the episode the one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by your book and your research and what you're doing is that, you know, when we look at suicidality, we there's such a strong link to people who can't sleep, insomnia, PTSD, nightmares, those things that sure. uh, we know factor into people wanting to end their lives. So uh, sure. I, I read your book to see if I could gather more insight. Is there is there anything that you know? I I know that there's a link between insomnia and, and depression and, and being a sleep physician, what, uh, is, what have you found? Well, I, th- I think that that link is very well established. We know that about 50% of people with uh, insomnia have depression or anxiety and that they often uh, drive insomnia. But equally, we also know that the relationship between sleep and mental health is it is in the other direction as well, is that in the insomnia is often a, a trigger for depressive episodes in individuals who have a tendency towards depression. And uh, and that actually the presence of insomnia can make depression much harder to treat. And so that this relationship between sleep and mental health goes both ways. You know, in the book, you you draw a distinction between uh, insomnia and hyperarousal, which I thought was fascinating uh, because uh, it, there's also a link to uh, weight loss and weight gain. Can you talk to us about the difference between insomnia versus hyperarousal? Well, for some individuals, hyperarousal, so this feeling of being permanently vigilant or being um, in a flight, fright, or, or, or fight response, usually at a low level, is a very potent trigger or factor in terms of causing the persistence of insomnia. So if one has low-level 
adrenaline, essentially, circulating through through one's bloodstream and, and through one's brain, uh, which in itself is quite an alerting phenomenon. And that is going to be very conducive to difficulty getting off to sleep um, and potentially difficulty staying asleep. But it's important to distinguish that from insomnia as a whole, because there are other reasons for insomnia. There are other causes for insomnia. And not everybody who has insomnia is in this hypervigilance or hyperarousal state. Certainly, if one spends a great deal of the day in this kind of state, which is often associated with anxiety, then that is going to make the process of getting off to sleep much more difficult. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, if I watch TV too close to bed, it creates this kind of hyperarousal state where I need at least another 30 minutes to an hour to kind of uh, get back to baseline before I can go to bed. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of how much watching TV before bed keeps us in that hyperarousal state. Yeah, I, I think that there is a, a growing literature surrounding the use of, for example, gadgets like mobile phones or uh, watching Netflix on, on, on your laptop before bed. And in, in the past, we've always assumed that the reason why that is so uh, deleterious to sleep is because of this issue of blue light. So there's been a, a, a huge amount of uh, information put out into the community about the influence of the the light uh, of these devices, which is very rich for blue light, having an impact on a chemical called melatonin, which is a, a sleep-promoting hormone in our brains. So blue light, exposure to blue light in the evenings uh, tends to suppress melatonin. And so uh, it's always been postulated that the reason why using these kinds of devices before bed um, induces insomnia or makes it more difficult for people to get off to sleep is through that melatonin link. But actually what we've started to appreciate is that you know, some of these devices that we're using, some of the intensities that we're using perhaps don't have that much of an impact on melatonin. And one of the very important ways in which they induce difficulty getting off to sleep is because of that mental arousal, that kind of fueling of the active brain at a time when the brain should be quiescent, it should be calm, should be getting ready for bed, which is why if you do have issues with getting off to sleep, having that wind-down period, that quietening of your mind is so important. What do you have a, a protocol for winding down at night? Like typically, like what would that look like for that? I know it, it's different for everybody, but is there are, are there general principles for winding down before going to bed? Uh, yes, but just before I go into that, it's probably worth saying that for people who are really good sleepers who never have any difficulty getting off to sleep, they can pretty much do whatever they like. So they can you know, watch a horror movie on Netflix and then shut down the laptop and go to sleep straight away. They can probably drink a cup of coffee an hour or two before bed and not have any difficulties. So so it's important to to stress that whether or not you have those routines is not necessarily the difference between whether or not you're going to be a good sleeper or a bad sleeper. Having said all of that, if you are a bad sleeper, then it's really important to spend a bit of time understanding your sleep and understanding the kinds of things that are going to make it more difficult for you to get off to sleep. 
So the kinds of things, and as you said in your question, it's not necessarily applicable to everybody. The, the kinds of things that you need to be aware of are physical activity too close to bedtime, the use of electronic gadgets that are going to m alert you mentally before bed, you know, things like social media, which are particularly good for putting your blood pressure up these days, in particular with everything that's going on in, in the world. Um, Ensuring that you don't drink caffeine in the afternoons, really. A lot of people don't appreciate that caffeine actually hangs around in our bloodstreams for quite some time. So avoiding any caffeine after about lunchtime is generally a good idea. Having a warm bath, any other relaxing activity uh, before bed that reduces that hyperarousal state is going to be very useful. If you do have issues with anxiety, uh, or, 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 or quietening the brain down than using mindfulness-based techniques. You know, things like, uh, I don't know if Headspace has made it over to, to the States. I think it has. It has, yes. Yeah. So, so, so these kinds of approaches to try and reduce the racing mind. You know, I noticed you said warm bath and not hot bath. Uh, and what's interesting is I, I found that if I take a hot bath uh, – it's it takes too long for my heart rate to come down to get back to baseline for me to go to sleep and so I, if i do take a hot bath it has to be uh 5 or 6 p.m. versus 8 or 9 uh p.m. uh is there a reason you made the distinction between hot bath versus warm bath or um, uh, not not specifically, but once again it comes down to what i said earlier which is that you have to understand your own body and your own body's sleep patterns. So if you're finding that, for example, you get a racing heart as a result of being overly warm, then, then a racing heart is a, is a to signal. It's a signal to the brain that, that actually perhaps you are feeling anxious. So sometimes we take somatic sensations, so physical sensations, and integrate them into our, uh, into our state of mind. So a racing heart. Uh, palpitations, a churning of the gut. And if you have got a racing heart that's induced by a very hot bath, then that may well give rise to feelings of anxiety or hyperarousal. Now, that's not the case for everyone. And it may be that somebody else who has a hot bath doesn't experience those similar sensations. So it's about working out what works for you. You, you brought up melatonin. And in the book, you, you talk about how melatonin can suppress uh, puberty. Can, can you talk about the uses of melatonin and is there an age at, at which uh, people should not use it like, uh, you know, you know, preteens and, and below? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think I specifically discuss puberty in, in my book. I, I, I think that there's a distinction between how melatonin is used in the states and how it's used in in europe so in the states of course you can go into any walgreens any supermarket and buy melatonin off the shelves it's seen very much as a health food supplement in in europe it's actually a prescription only medication um, and uh, is is pharmaceutical grade and it's only licensed for individuals above the age of 55 um now I'm not sure from a medical perspective why it is restricted on the basis of licensing. Perhaps it's because the licensing authorities don't want it to be used too, too widely. But melatonin has really got two functions. It's 
first function is as a sleep promoter. So if you give somebody melatonin, it will make them sleepy. And so that's the typical use um, as a sleep aid. But it also has a, another effect, usually at a much lower dose. So melatonin is a very important chemical signal for the regulation of our internal body clock, our circadian rhythm. So by giving people smaller doses of melatonin that are used uh, as a sleep aid, one can actually push people's body clock forward or back. So if you are if you have a tendency to go to bed extremely late and wake up very late, then actually by giving somebody appropriately timed melatonin, one can actually bring bedtime forward, for example. Or if you're tending to go to bed very early and wake up early, one can actually push bedtime back. So these two uses. Now, actually, in a clinical setting, we use melatonin in, in other ways as well. So we use it as a treatment for, for example, sleepwalking or for people who are acting out their dreams. And whilst we don't fully understand how um, melatonin actually works in these situations, it certainly seems to be a very effective treatment for some individuals. You know, you're, you're, you have, uh, I love your book and, and really like loved reading the stories and, and it's particularly the ones about people who slept, you know, in my head, I just knew that people, uh, some people uh, sleepwalked or sleptwalked and um, I didn't realize that people sleep drive, they sleep eat. Like there, you cover such a range of disorders um, in the book. The is there a um, a psychological uh, basis for how they act out? Uh, I don't know if "act out" is the right word, but how their sleepwalking manifests in terms of it versus eating versus driving versus just walking around. Well, I think there's no there's no set pattern. Um, we think that probably the behavior is defined by the degree to which various parts of the brain are awake or asleep. Now, obviously, your daytime functioning, your daytime behavior, your daytime state of mind may well influence um, your nighttime brain activity. And we do, for example, fully recognize the fact that for some individuals who sleepwalk or have night terror, the daytime stress and anxiety will influence the severity or the frequency of their nighttime events. There are some forms of behavior that seem to be more strongly linked to uh, psychological state. So, for example, sleep eating is often associated with, first of all, a disruption of your internal body clock, but it does seem to be more likely to occur in individuals who have eating disorders during the day. And perhaps that illustrates to some extent that there are variations in terms of the drivers of our behaviors at night. But having said all of that, you know, there are many, many cases in the literature of people doing really terrible things like murdering somebody in the night uh, without it in any way reflecting on what they are like during the day, whether or not they have any psychological issues or psychiatric diagnoses. So there is this disconnect, by and large, between daytime life and nighttime life in these individuals. Is there an evolutionary basis for this? Because I, I, you know, when I, you know, when we study evolution, things are always uh, framed in terms of uh, us evolving and what could help us. 
And I'm trying to put my brain around how sleepwalking could have been of any benefit to us uh, in the past or present. Well, I think that the hypothesis surrounding sleepwalking is that uh, for whatever reason, individuals who sleepwalk in adulthood, by and large, have deep sleep that is less um, intense, is less deep than other individuals. And so one could imagine that if, for example, we were sleeping in our caves and a predator came into our caves and woke us up in very deep sleep, there would be an evolutionary advantage to at least part of our brain waking up and us running out of the cave, for example. But I think that that's very, very speculative. I, I, you know, at the core of these kinds of behaviors is the fact that the view that most of us have, which is that the brain works as a single unified entity, that when we're asleep, the whole of our brain is asleep, is actually incorrect. And that different parts of our brain can exist in wake or sleep at the same time. From an evolutionary perspective, certainly for some mammals, like aquatic mammals, it's of crucial importance that they can do that because they need to be able to swim whilst they're asleep. They need to be able to breathe while they're asleep. And of course, they need to be uh, aware of their environment whilst they're asleep in order to avoid predation. And so it may be that actually this comes back to what I was talking about is that you need to be able to respond at times of stress like predation in the middle of the night. And this may be the origin of sleepwalking, although that's entirely speculative. Wow, that's fascinating. I never really thought about that link. Uh, Thank you for uh, mentioning that. Uh, In the book, you also mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy for people who struggle with uh, hyperarousal or insomnia. uh, What are some of the uh, guideposts of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to help people with insomnia? So, So at the core of many people with insomnia is the fact that they have begun to associate the sleeping environment, the bedroom, with difficulty getting off to sleep, with um, struggling to get off to sleep, with lying in bed and getting frustrated with the fact that they can't get off to sleep. And and so that positive association that most people have, or at least those people who are good sleepers have, is, uh, is broken down and replaced by this negative association, which of course is in itself very uh, conducive to poor sleep. What cognitive behavioral therapy aims to do is aims to rebuild that positive association between bed and sleep and get rid of those negative associations between bed and failure to go to sleep. And it uses multiple different techniques to try and rebuild those positive associations. Um, Some of that is surrounding sleep behaviors. So the kinds of things that we were talking about, which is sometimes termed sleep hygiene, what kinds of things you need to be doing in your daytime lives and surrounding sleep that might be conducive to good night's sleep. Some of that is going to be about trying to um, make sure that you associate your sleeping environment with sleep rather than wake. And so one of the things that we really try and reinforce in individuals who have insomnia is that they should not be spending prolonged periods of time in bed lying awake. Because the more time you spend in bed lying awake, the stronger you reinforce 
that connection between bed and wake rather than bed and sleep. So things like, for example, if you're lying in bed for any longer than uh, 20 minutes or so, struggling to get off to sleep, going to a different room, sitting quietly, reading, listening to music, rather than spending prolonged periods in bed awake. A lot of people in response to insomnia tend to spend a great deal of time in bed because they are trying to compensate for the fact that they know that they're going to have a rubbish night's sleep. And if you're doing that, then of course you're you're increasing the amount of time that you're lying in bed awake and therefore making that association stronger rather than weaker. One other really important aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is a, is a protocol called sleep compression. Essentially what that does is it tries to make people who have insomnia sleep deprived, which sounds rather counterintuitive. It reduces the amount of time that they're spending in bed. What this essentially aims to do is it aims to use the brain's underlying drive to go to sleep when sleep deprived to overcome those negative associations. So by the end of this protocol, you're very sleep deprived and your brain begins to, the drive of your brain to go to sleep begins to kick in to the point where actually you fall asleep relatively quickly when you get into bed. And the aim of that, once again, is to try and rebuild that association between going to bed and falling asleep. You know, I, I was just thinking about uh, last night. I, I guess, first of all, how did you sleep last night? Uh, you know, I, I'm sure nobody ever asked you that, but how did you sleep last night? Well, I, I got woken up by my daughter in the middle of the night, so I think that's a bit of an unfair question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Was she having a nightmare? No, she just she just decided that that uh, two o'clock in the morning would be an appropriate time to come and say hello. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then she went right back to bed. I love it. <laughs> um, well, you know w- what's interesting is you know I am such a different person when I get a good night's sleep versus when I don't. Like when I get a good night's sleep, uh, everything is great. Everything's wonderful. When I get a bad night's sleep, I, I'm grumpy. I'm, I don't want anybody around me. Like, what's happening at a, a – is it just cortisol levels are heightened? Because I, it, it's, I feel like I'm like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. What are, what's happening on a chemical hormonal level besides the cortisol? There has to be more involved. Well, I, I think the short answer is we don't know. I, wow. I, I think that the, the, the longer answer is that um, – we know that you know sleep is fundamental to a huge amount of underlying processes that are involved in maintenance of brain function and those include uh, areas of the brain that are responsible in mood regulation in uh, attention in vigilance in levels of irritability uh, and in mood uh, and so one can imagine that as a result of sleep deprivation there are a whole range of changes uh, on a on a on a chemical level, that can result in significant fluctuations in in levels of uh, anxiety, in terms of mood, in terms of vigilance, in terms of cognition, a whole range of factors. I mean, you know, as as I as I detail in my book, sleep is of such fundamental importance to the to to the regulation of. Uh, the brain and uh, brain integrity that actually there's a growing literature surrounding sleep and dementia for example in that we know that 
actually there is this whole network of channels within the brain called the glymphatic system that is involved in the removal of of toxins from the brain and those channels actually open up in in deep sleep and so one can really then visualize the fact that if one doesn't get enough deep sleep and those channels don't open and all those metabolites all those toxic products of of being alive build up within the brain and are not flushed out and in fact we can see changes in levels of certain proteins within the brain even after a single night of sleep deprivation so 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 this mechanism is a, at least one of the important me- mechanisms in the regulation of brain integrity you know in the book you, you discuss that uh, in terms of PTSD and and uh, getting into deep REM cycles, which for the listeners, uh, you know, I, I just realized that there's some listeners who may not even understand what REM is. Can you can you define uh, what REM sleep is? And then you, you talk about how um, sometimes we have the same dream or nightmare over and over again because we're looking for uh, closure. And I, I guess I'm asking two questions. One, can you define what REM sleep is? And then two, how do we how do we close that loop so that we, we're not sure. having these reoccurring nightmares? Sure, sure. So, so what is REM sleep? Well, REM sleep is the stage of sleep that we most identify with dreaming, particularly those dreams of a narrative structure, by which I mean a film or a plot evolving in our mind, usually surreal or fantastical. Uh, we, we, we now know that uh, we actually do dream to some extent outside of REM sleep, but certainly it's what has historically been referred to as dreaming sleep. During this stage of sleep, uh, which we go through typically about four or five times over the course of the night, um, we are very uh, asleep from a physical perspective. So it's during this stage of sleep that our Muscles are completely paralyzed. The only muscles that really carry on working are the muscles that allow us to breathe and those that move our eyes, which is why it's termed rapid eye movement sleep. But actually, when we look at the brain, the brain is incredibly alert. The brain waves from an electrical perspective look rather similar to the wake brain. So it's almost as if the brain is very active, but it's offline from the outside world. So so that's essentially what REM sleep is. And Whilst we do not fully understand the functions of REM sleep, it's likely that REM sleep has more than one function. One uh, potential function of it is in the regulation of our emotions and also the regulation of our emotional memory. And what I mean by that is that we have associated with autobiographical memories, things that we've gone through, things that we've seen, things that we've experienced, Um, emotions associated with those. And I think we'll all be familiar with the fact that actually when we've experienced a a very intense emotional experience, uh, that is something that is very strongly centered within our mind. That is something that we recall very easily. But if we have an experience that is so strong in terms of its emotional context, then at some point we need to be able to remember what actually happened without necessarily the intensity of the emotion that's associated with that memory. 
And from you, you were talking earlier about evolution. Uh, so one of the um, one of the things that I use as an example in my book is, it, of course, if you have a close call with the snake when you're living out in the wild, then you want to be able to remember extremely well how quickly you got away from the snake and how dangerous it was. What you don't want is you don't want to be you don't want to experience that intensity of emotion associated with that memory of the snake so that the next time you see that snake, the emotional memory causes you to freeze. You want to experience the benefit of remembering that incident without necessarily the full force of the emotional context to that, that memory. So so the one of the theories about what happens whilst we're dreaming is that we are essentially reinforcing those memories, but we're cleansing them of the emotional context. And which really brings us to post-traumatic stress disorder, because in post-traumatic stress disorder, one of the features of PTSD, one, especially one of the latest features of PTSD that often persists even when many of the other features have disappeared, is that people will often have recurrent nightmares related to their traumatic event. And so the, the, the theory is, and this remains a theory, is that one of the reasons why PTSD may persist is because the memory of that incident is so strong that when we relive that incident in our dreams, the emotions actually cause us to wake up. And so that dream process is never completed, it's never enacted, and that process of cleansing that memory of its emotional context it, it is never completed either, which results in this circuit never really being broken. So that may be an explanation as to why uh, recurrent nightmares related to the traumatic incident is such a strong feature of PTSD. Yeah, in the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, he, he talks about how you know, we lock those uh, emotional memories in, in different parts of our body, whether it's the stomach, chest, head, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that uh, through movement, uh, specifically he talks uh, about yoga as a way of releasing that uh, emotional trauma, which is why, you know, people cry at the end of a yoga class or even at the end of a, um, you know, an intense dance uh, experience or, or, or workout, there's a welling up of emotions. Have you, have you found a link to movement? And, uh, and I mean, I know that's not your specific specialty, but. Yeah, I mean, I, releasing... I would say that's very, very outside my, gotcha. my area of expertise. Yeah. You know, what... I'm not sure I can give you any sense of comment. Uh, now, what I also loved in the in the book is, uh, and this is something I'm just now looking at. You talked about chronotypes, night owls uh, versus morning larks, and and it's linked to circadian rhythms. I I I have my first question is, and and I don't know if this is outside your realm. Does the circadian rhythm change throughout the year? And I'm asking this because we see a spike in uh completed suicides in the spring and uh and it's because of it, or, or they're theorizing it's because of the increase or the change in daylight it causes this kind of restlessness uh and uh and so we see a spike in the spring and i wonder if it also changes the internal 
circadian rhythm or our or affects our chronotype? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so when we talk of chronotype, we talk about uh, an individual's tendency to wake up and go to sleep in relation to the external world. And what we know that the chronotype does shift, it shifts through life. So as we become teenagers, we tend to um, we tend to drift a little bit later, which is why teenagers often go to bed very late and wake up late. And then as we approach old age, we tend to have, develop an earlier chronotype. We go to bed earlier and wake up earlier. Um, the, the, our, our circadian clock has to to shift a little bit. And that is why things like bright light and melatonin are important drivers of the circadian rhythm, because we don't live in a static world. We live in a world that, that fluctuates. And, you know, we now um, move within that world as well. So we change time zones. And so the circadian rhythm is not set in stone. It can drift a little uh, one way or another. But for the most part, or at least 50% of our chronotype is defined by, by our genes. There are genes that influence whether or not we're a, a morning lark or a, a, or a night owl, and those are often inherited. So we're much more likely to be extreme night owls if our parents were extreme night owls. And so obviously our genetic predisposition is not going to shift. Um, and the other 50% contribution is probably what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So are we exposing ourselves to lots of bright light in the evenings, causing our, our um, circadian rhythm to shift um, backward? Or are we exposing ourselves to lots of bright light in the morning, which is causing our circadian rhythm to shift forward? But but the the um, I'm not sure that... That process of shifting the circadian rhythm, first of all, for one individual is relatively small uh, as we shift uh, through the year. And it's probably too small to account for that spike in in um, suicide that you describe in spring. I'm not sure that can be put down to purely a, um, a, a circadian effect. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. The uh, one of the other reasons why I was so fascinated about reading your book is you also talk about sleep apnea, which I have. And uh, I didn't realize it until I, I was dating a girl who was a doctor. And, and the, the, like the first night I slept over, she woke me up and was like, you yeah, have sleep apnea. And so I, you got a free you got a free consultation from that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I realized and I still don't have a CPAP machine, which uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to fight against be, uh, by um by regulating or not not regulating but being mindful of like um how close i eat to bed because i realize if i eat too close to bed uh that can um exacerbate it uh especially if it's like you know fatty uh fast foods things like that um and then also i realized that sleeping on my side as you mentioned in the book uh alleviates the symptom if i sleep on my back uh it comes back and and i and it's strange to me because I always start off on my side and for some reason I'll turn on my back, which I haven't understood. I would think evolutionarily it would not let me sleep on my back because, you know, that's where I, uh, I could die, basically, uh, from, from not enough air. Uh, can you talk to us about what you found with sleep apnea and, 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 turn, and how to treat it? 
Yeah, so, so I think the first thing to say is that sleep apnea doesn't cause people to die, at least not like how people think. So the worst thing that will happen when you stop breathing in your sleep is that you will wake up and start breathing again. Um, so, so what sleep apnea is, essentially, is that for whatever reason, uh, the airway uh, is a little uh, narrower, narrower in some individuals than others. And there are certain factors that make the airway more likely to collapse in sleep because the airway is held stiff by a number of muscles within the throat. And as we enter into sleep, those muscles relax, the airway becomes more floppy, and it makes the whole airway more likely to collapse down and obstruct in sleep. So the sorts of things that actually increase your risk of that happening is weight gain or a particular jaw shape or a particular skull shape or very large tonsils. But this is a very common phenomenon. It occurs in roughly about 10% of men and 5% of women, although it's probably happening uh, ever-increasing numbers at the moment because it's so, so strongly associated with weight. Um, the net effect of this is that essentially if you've got bad sleep apnea, your sleep is being disrupted sometimes 10, 20, even 100 times an hour because what's happening is as you drift off to sleep, your airway becomes less rigid, it collapses down, it obstructs, your brain says, oh, my oxygen levels are dropping, uh, uh, and so you partially wake up, usually not completely, enough to disrupt your sleep but not enough for you to be aware of waking, and so your sleep can be disrupted up to you know, 100, 120 times per hour. And essentially what is happening is that you are being sleep deprived. You are getting very little good quality sleep, which can give rise to all, all the issues that we discussed in terms of impact on mood, impact on anxiety, impact on, on uh, cognition. Um, but it's also associated with a whole host of other issues like increased risk of cardiovascular disease, of, of high blood pressure, um, and it can have a, a number of important implications for neurological disorders like, for example, migraine headaches or epilepsy, um, and uh, may well have a, a, an important bearing on individuals who have, for example, depression. When we look at especially depression, you know, I uh, obviously struggle with that, which is one of the reasons why I started the podcast and and realizing how important sleep is. Also uh, realizing the efficacy and importance of taking a nap, which I, I feel like in our culture is shunned upon is, is you just being lazy. But there's so many cultures that have a siesta and, and, and you know, a daytime break here. We get like a half hour. Uh, maybe an hour if you're lucky, but in, in other countries they get you know up to like three hours. Uh, is does everybody need a nap, or is it is this one of those things where it's individual also depending on uh, how it affects you? Yeah, I, I think the answer to that is not everybody needs a nap. I think that the siesta culture in certain parts of Europe is is um, largely driven by environmental circumstances. So the very fact that actually it's very hot during the day, they have an opportunity to sleep and therefore sleep less at night. Um, and, and, and for the most part, if you are in bed for eight hours and you're sleeping for eight hours uh, overnight, the likelihood is that you shouldn't really need a nap during the day. If you are needing a nap during the day, then it is very likely that 
either you are sleep deprived at night, i.e. you're not spending enough time in bed, you're not giving yourself enough of an opportunity to sleep at night, or there is something like, for example, sleep apnea that is disrupting your nighttime sleep. Got it. Yeah. You know, you also mentioned restless leg syndrome in the book, which, you know, I've seen the commercials and I was like, is this real or are they just making it up? But mm. uh, but I do know some people who definitely have it. But you said it's linked to an iron. It's possibly linked to an iron deficiency. Is that uh, is there a strong uh, causality or, or, or link there? Yes, there is. So for some individuals, um, we know that um, having iron deficiency is a very potent trigger of restless leg syndrome. So, uh, for example, if you donate blood, then that can precipitate um, restless leg syndrome in some individuals. In other individuals, it's usually genetic, and we have identified a number of genes that influence the risk of developing restless leg syndrome. And in yet other individuals, and this is a particular relevance to individuals with depression and anxiety, is that many of the drugs that are used for the treatment of depression and anxiety are very good at triggering restless leg syndrome. But it, but you're right, this is a very real um, phenomenon. This is a very real neurological disorder that historically has always been um, poured scorn upon, in part because of its name, which is a little unfortunate, um, but also in part because until recent years, there was never any clear objective evidence of any abnormalities in individuals who suffered from this. But we now understand that there are genetic factors. One can look at various tissues uh, like the spinal cord under the uh, microscope. One can do particular scans that clearly demonstrate abnormalities uh, in certain systems within the brain and the spinal cord in individuals who have restless leg syndrome. So it is a very real phenomenon. Fascinating. Um, are there are there any questions I haven't asked you that you think would be of value to people struggling with nightmares uh, uh, or any type of sleep disorders? Um, I guess the issue would be, you know, how how do I? Well, I, I guess you'll probably discuss that in your script, won't you? About you know if you have issues with your mood and you have problems with your sleep, then please do go and discuss this with your doctor because, uh, as I said right at the start, if you have mood issues and you've got insomnia, actually, without treating the insomnia, treating the depression is much harder than it otherwise should be. And so if you have both depression and insomnia, it's worth making sure that both adequately treated in order to get the optimal response. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, because, you know, in the book, you also talked about how, uh, what is it, uh, benzos and uh, like antihistamines aren't really great for sleep. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, we, we So historically, um, m medics have depended very uh, extensively upon benzodiazepines and Z drugs, so drugs like uh, Zolpidem or, or, or Zopiclone, Ambien, um, to uh, improve sleep. Um, and whilst these drugs are very good in the short term, so they, they do help people in the short term, in the long term, they are not very good 
options unless in you are one of those specific cases whereby either you don't respond to anything else or you have significant other factors that might cause people to move towards these particular drugs. But for the most part, these drugs do not simulate natural sleep. Um, they have a risk of dependency, a risk of addiction, uh, and there are some concerns about the, the long-term repercussions of taking these drugs. So by and large, we tend to prefer the use of drug-based treatments like, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Having said all of that, these non-drug-based treatments don't work for everyone. And there is a, a hard core of individuals in whom medication is an appropriate um, way to try and treat insomnia, usually in conjunction with those non-drug-based treatments, but sometimes after those non-drug-based treatments have, have failed to obtain results. Um, but for long-term treatment with insomnia, we tend to prefer other drugs rather than drugs like benzodiazepines and Z-drugs, except, as I said, in very particular circumstances. Yeah, you know, it's to me, it's so fascinating how much uh, environment can affect uh, how we sleep and uh, maybe even some sleeping disorders. I I had a friend who, excuse me, he struggled with um, nightmares. Uh, he was he was in the military and um, and had that survivor's guilt. And no. when he came back, he couldn't sleep, and he his therapist finally recommended that he move to a place uh, by the train tracks because uh, he realized uh, the problem was that it was too quiet. Usually, we think of quiet being the best thing for sleep. But in his case, because uh, quiet was associated with uh, an un, you know incoming missile, or you know like the calm before the storm, him living by yeah. the train tracks uh, got uh, alleviated his uh, his nightmare symptoms. So uh, it, you know it's it, it, these are you know sometimes you have to be creative and get outside the box along with uh, you know meds and and seeing a therapist. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the fascinating thing about sleep. And it's something that I write about in my book is that sleep is not purely a biological process. Um, it's influenced by our biology. It's influenced by our brains. But it's also influenced by our psychological state. It's influenced by our behavior. And it's influenced by our environment. It's an amalgam of all those things. Uh, uh, you know, and that's what makes the um, treatment of individuals with sleep disorders such a fascinating and sometimes very challenging thing. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense. Me and my girl are always arguing over the room temperature uh, for sleep. I, I, I think it's supposed to be 69. She says 77. But th what I loved in your book is you said, like, if you're not able to consistently get into to the REM cycles, it disrupts your body's ability to regulate uh, body temperature so that you often find that you're colder. I believe you said colder if you're not able to get into the REM cycles. Well, I think that that's what that's one of the hypotheses that has been put forward by uh, one of the professors that I uh, interviewed from from Harvard. Um, you cer cer certainly, um, we know that actually when when we're in REM sleep, we actually lose the ability to regulate our body temperature, and if we're too cold, we won't enter into REM sleep. Uh, I see. Uh, and, and last question is, you know, I always ask this of all my guests is always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them? guy? 
Oh, that's a that's a tough question. That's a unfair to spring that on me. Um, what would I say to them? I would say that um, I, I would say to them from a from a sleep perspective, things can always be made better. And if you can make things better from a sleep perspective, you can probably make things better from a, a general life perspective as well. I love that. What well said and so true. I always feel so much better or my, my perspective and mood and all that changes after a good night's sleep. Uh, please plug all your things. Where can people find you? Uh, get the book, uh, plug the book, all that stuff. Yeah. So the book is called uh, The Nocturnal uh, Brain, um, Nightmares, Neuroscience and the Secret World of Sleep, uh, which can be found in any good bookshop or Amazon. And, and my uh, Twitter is Guy underscore Lesh, L-E-S-C-H. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you so much, listeners. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-S-U-I-C-I-D-E or 1-800-273-TALK or any of the other international numbers for those of you in the Philippines, Asia, England, and in the world throughout. There are phone numbers, there are text messages, there are groups, there is someone out there for you. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Guy. Okay, Leo. Good luck with everything. Thank you.